Hello, my name is David Penn, and I'm introducing you today to the Professor Penn Podcast. If you like this content, please subscribe and please hit the like button. This podcast is about current events, about the crisis that we're in today, and how we got here. It's very important, I think, to understand the history, the philosophy, the ideas which have brought us to this point, this this moment in human history, maybe the most epical moment in human history. Uh, what do we want to do? We want to live. We're sitting here today uh, with the United States at war with Russia. It's not a declared war. It's a de facto war. We have American military in the Ukraine, American arms in the Ukraine, Russia is a nuclear superpower, and we are right on Russia's border. How do we get here? What does it mean? Well, I'm 63 years old. I've got a little more history than most of the people that are watching this. It's very important to know how we got here. I remember in the 1980s, there was when we had a similar conflict with the Russians. Actually, it wasn't similar. It was a lot less. But people were very concerned about the use of nuclear weapons. And there was millions and millions and millions of people in the streets every weekend protesting the possibility of nuclear war. And it was in the United States. It was in Europe. It was in Asia. People were aware. They were awake. They were motivated. They were fighting against and making their will felt such that that the leaders of the world actually responded. What is the, the, the buried lead in that? Each one of us has a will. Our wills, to some degree, to a larger degree or a lesser degree, are undermined. They're undermined by what we're taught. They're undermined by the trauma that we suffer. They're undermined by disinformation, propaganda. But if we really think about the human will, and we start to think about uh, what has historically been the secret knowledge, the secret knowledge. For example, if we have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, we can cast a mountain into the sea. It sounds fantastic. It's a New Testament quote. Some of you are familiar with it. Maybe some of you only heard it now for the first time. But the idea is, is that if we have faith, we can do miraculous things. And the fact that people lack faith and lack will means that we are not in a position where we can confront and resist forces in the world that would risk our lives in nuclear war. And this podcast is really dedicated to recovering will, to recovering human strength and human dignity, such that we can come together as a community and fight for peace and prosperity, for happiness, for well-being, the things that really have been robbed from us. For example, I was thinking, getting ready to do this podcast, I got a bottle of water here. I'm drinking water. Now, I drink soft drinks, but I know that every time I do, I'm poisoning myself. I know that sugar is bad for me, and I know that artificial sugar is worse. So I try to minimize those things that make me ill. 
that robbed me of my well-being. So if you're watching this and you look down and you got a sugary drink, remember that's a choice. And our lives are a summation of all the choices that we make with our free will. We do have free will. It is undermined. We have undermined free will. When I say undermined, we are unable to achieve the goals that we set for ourselves. We have to struggle against our own uh, insufficiencies, our own inadequacies, our own self-doubt. And as we age, if we get the right teaching, if we get the right mentors, uh, we can actually go a long way towards healing our will. And it's all about free will. So there's really two kinds of philosophies in this world. It's very simple for me. At 63, I can make it very simple. There are people that believe in God, and there are people that believe in Darwin. If you believe in God, and you have faith in God, then you believe that God made you in his likeness and image, and that he has given you a free will. If you believe in Darwin, you believe that you have a genetic uh, inheritance, that you're a process of natural selection, and that actually your behavior and your thinking is somewhat predetermined by your genetic predispositions. And these two philosophies, faith in God and faith in Darwinism, and I call it faith because these are two stories. One is a story about how the world came to be with the supreme being that created it. The other is a story about how the world came to be without a supreme being. It's up for each one of us to choose which is the narrative that we prefer. That is free will. And we're at a time in history where it's kind of backed up on us now. We're, you know, in my, in my opinion, in my opinion, we're at this, this, this turning point in human history where uh, five or 600 years of scientific and philosophical development have led us to this moment where we actually have the power to destroy ourselves and we're on the verge of allowing. And when I say destroy ourselves, we are the government. We, the American people, we, the people, are the government. The Chinese people, they are the government. These people that represent us or rule over us only do so because we allow it. There's a handful of them and there are billions and billions of us. So the idea that they are in control is one of the primary illusions that we are spoon-fed from the time we are little children. How do they do it? Well, I would call it, my opinion again, the well-being checkup. All of a sudden, that doctor, who's our well-being checkup, we're looking to him for our health and our well-being instead of realizing that our health and our well-being comes from within ourselves. What we have done as a culture, as a world culture, we have decided to replace the traditional with the postmodern. What was the traditional? It was man living in harmony with nature. It was man understanding, at that time, the understanding was that nature was the creation of God, and that one of the ways that man could connect with God was through his relationship or her relationship with the natural environment. 
Today, we're living in a digitized environment. You're viewing me on your, likely on your smartphone device. Uh, you got headphones on. We're not talking person to person. I'm talking to you through this uh, digital medium. It's very unreal. I want to bring as much reality t- to this podcast as I possibly can through this very digitized medium. And I'm on all the social media. I urge all of you to communicate with me. I'll try to answer if I can. What this is is a community. And I also want to say I am part of a worldwide group of people that are working together to enhance human well-being. And when I say enhance human well-being, that's exactly what I mean. All I see at 63 years old, looking back on my life, is an endless series of assaults on my well-being that I was told was the way it was. For example, chemicalized food. Why? Why was that okay? Whoever said that was okay? Pollution. Uh, The military-industrial complex. There are so many threats to my well-being, so many assaults on my human dignity, and I've been taught that this is the way it is. It is the way it is because we, as the billions of America, the world people, the billions of people and the 350 million Americans, we accept this. And if we continue to accept this, we're very likely going to die together. Because the people that are running this thing, the people that we elect, the people that we watch on television, have us at war in the Ukraine with a nuclear superpower. And this is insanity. And when I look out on the weekends and see the streets empty, when I see no protests, when I see the people watching football and watching their phones, going to the movies as if life is normal, I know that not only our leaders are insane, but we, the American people, are insane. We have lost connection with the natural way. We've lost connection with what makes us human beings. So in this podcast series, we're going to talk about how we got here, what's the history, what's going on today. But I also want to try to share with you how I've maintained my well-being, how I've healed the problems that I faced in my life, and they have been profound problems, life-threatening problems, both of a a health nature and also of uh, having a gun stuck in my face nature. So I want to talk about uh, what I've been through um, because being older, I possess knowledge and experience that is really being wiped away for the younger generation. Um, I have five children. Uh, they've gone. Some of them have gone to the best schools in the country. They don't know how to critically think. Uh, I know from the way I was educated, uh, I was taught how to critically think. Uh, you know, science as an inquiry is about doubting everything all the time. There's no trusting anything. And I understand that every version of history, every version of anthropology that I read, is political in nature in the sense that somebody is giving me their version of the truth. What is the essential for each one of us as human beings is to develop our own relationship with truth, 
our own ability to feel it, to hear it, to know it. And then when we are able to understand and recognize truth, to try to live the truth, because truth is well-being and lies are ill health. So for the remainder of today's uh, podcast, I want to try to go back in time to a time that I actually, some of it I remember. I was born in the 50s, and I'm the child of the Holocaust. Over half of my family died in Europe during the Holocaust. So that experience, that World War II experience, is is known to me. It's not a story in a book. I know the names and stories of the people who died. And uh, I'm traumatized by the Holocaust. I've been traumatized my entire life uh, with anxiety and suffering because when um, you have 88 million people die in five years and you hear their screams and you feel their suffering and it permeates the world that you grow up in, you have post-traumatic stress disorder just from living post-Holocaust. Think of that World War II experience as a giant nuclear bomb and the shockwaves from that bomb are reverberating through this world to this very day. In fact, they did drop two nuclear bombs, and those of you who really may have forgot this history, the United States dropped two nuclear bombs to end World War II on the Japanese Imperial Empire, one in the city of Hiroshima and one on the city of Nagasaki, killing hundreds of thousands of people and poisoning millions of people with radiation poisoning, and it forced the Japanese to capitulate. Uh, let's go back and look at that history. Let's, let's, let's unpack the critical issues of that time, the 1940s, and how we are living in the reverberation of that time today in 2023. Mr. Producer, could you um, play this clip, number one, of uh, uh, General Eisenhower? Soldiers? sailors and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air, and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war, and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. 
Okay. So this was um, uh, General Eisenhower, who was the supreme commander of Allied forces of what was called at that time the United Nations for the first time. This was his uh, speech or his transmission to the hundreds of thousands of American, British, and Canadian soldiers that embarked on the invasion of uh, Europe on June 6, 1944. This was the largest uh, invasion, largest uh, seaborne invasion in world history up to that time and since that time. And what General Eisenhower was talking about was the Nazi tyranny that had taken hold of Europe. A darkness had descended upon the European continent, a darkness that was uh, formed in uh, repression, censorship, genocide, torture, terror. It was an absolute horror for the people of Europe. And the uh, application of the techniques, the propaganda techniques, the scientific techniques, the terror techniques that the Nazis perfected and then implemented in Europe, they have not gone away. Uh, It's my opinion we're suffering from many of those same uh, techniques today. And in a future podcast, I'm certainly going to talk about how uh, the United States government uh, brought hundreds and hundreds of top Nazi scientists and military leaders into this country and into our government in the 1940s. And the uh, integration integration of those scientists and political leaders actually affected the political development and philosophy of the American government because Nazis are Darwinists. They do not believe in the Judeo-Christian traditions of the Western world. They don't believe in God. They believe in survival of the fittest. And I remember when I went to seventh grade, uh, it was uh, 1972, Highland Park Senior High School, St. Paul, Minnesota. And I was in uh, biology class, seventh grade. And I was raised uh, quite faithfully, uh, was very involved. I come from very religious people. And I, I hit that seventh grade class with Mr. Weber. I, I probably can say his name because I'm, I'm relatively sure he's been passed away for decades. And we studied, and I was exposed to the first time, the origin of the species, which is uh, Charles Darwin's treatise on uh, evolution. And, you know, I, I'd heard about it before as a fourth, fifth, and sixth grader, but I'd never really studied it. And the way that was presented to me was this religious thing, this story of creation, the story of Adam and Eve, the story of Genesis— Science proves it's absolutely impossible. There's no way that the world was created in seven days. There's no way that people lived to be a thousand years old. This was pure story. The truth was the theory of evolution. And you know what? I thought that was a pretty good idea. I was a young kid. It was 1972. America was large and in charge. Those young people, you young people out there, you have no idea what it feels like to grow up in a country that has defeated the Axis powers of Italy, Japan, and Germany, 
the only intact economy in the world. Every other country was destroyed. 88 million people died, only about 600,000 Americans, which is a damn big number. But compared to 88 million, not that big a number. Horrible if it was your father or your brother or your son. Terrible. And the country suffered greatly from that 600,000 people dying. But 88 million people died internationally. I think 30 million, and the producer, Mr. Producer, can look it up. I think it was, you know, like 30 million Chinese people, and maybe, uh, I, I mean, I, I just, the, the numbers are so staggering. Uh, Soviet Union, 24 million. Uh, United States, 450,000. Uh, Yugoslavia lost a million people, and on and on it goes. There was so much death. So much destruction. China, look at that number, China. 20 million people died. 20 million people died. Uh, Germany, 8,800,000 people. Where's Russia? Let's get down to the Soviet Union. That number is staggering. Down, keep going. There it is, right there. What does that say? 24 million people? I mean, this is. these are the kind of uh, death counts that utterly alter a culture. You don't have young men to run your industry. You don't have young men to re reproduce the population of the country. And here I grew up in the United States. We were never bombed. We lost a very moderate amount of people in comparison. We won. We had an incredible uh, military, incredible technology. And I was so proud. And my whole generation, we thought, Wow, this is just fantastic. We're the most powerful country on earth. Our will be done. All the propaganda that I was exposed to told me that the United States was the greatest country on earth, that what we did was right, that democracy was right, that everything else was wrong. And the post-World War II democratic liberal order was the end of history, that this was the highest flourishing of human political organization, and we believed it. I mean, we believed it, like, wholeheartedly. And this origin of the species, the theory of evolution, was integrally related to it because it was the progress of science, the reliance on the scientific method, the belief that life was always going to get better, that science was always going to give us the next shiny object which approved our life, you know, we had uh, the washing machine, which liberated women from washing clothes by hand. We had electricity. We had the radio. Then we had television. Life was getting so great. But the one that really sold my generation was the polio vaccine that was introduced in the late 50s, developed by a doctor named Jonas Salk. And polio was wiped out. And now there was antibiotics, so people weren't dying of bacterial diseases. And we thought things were fantastic. We went to these doctors twice a year, and they gave us vaccinations, and they gave us antibiotics, and nobody had to die. Like, I was told, remember my mother telling me, we don't have to die of bacterial diseases and infectious diseases like our uh, forebearers had, that we had this great opportunity to live such pros prosperous and healthy lives. We believed it. We sucked it up with a straw, and away we went. But let's look at what really was going on. What really was going on, if you could just um, 
play clip number two, and we're going to stop it as we go because it's so rich with information. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold. Could you stop it right there, and please? And the end is not yet. Okay, this, for those of you who don't recognize him, this is President Harry Truman. Truman has a very interesting story. Uh, we had a, the previous president was President Roosevelt. And president Roosevelt was originally elected as president in 1932. President Roosevelt was a liberal, far-left Democrat. And he was elected at the height of the Great Depression. They call it the Great Depression in hindsight. Today they don't call the situation we're in today the Great Depression but it's quite depressing. And 100 years from now, they're not going to call this 1932 thing the Great Depression. They're going to call it the First Depression. Our generation, all of the people listening to this, we are living through the greatest depression in world history. Roosevelt elected in 32. He was elected with a overtly, blatantly communist vice president, Vice President Wallace. And they served together for three terms. In those days, there was no term limits for the president. And uh, uh, Henry Wallace, vice president, President Roosevelt, they presided over the uh, attempted recovery from the Great Depression. Uh, wasn't very successful, of course, until, up oh, World War II. Nothing solves a depression like a big war because now people's mind is not on what they don't have, it's on just staying alive. So a great way to cover up a huge economic chaos is to go to war. Sound familiar in the Ukraine? Maybe you want to start to draw those connections and connect those dots. Just my opinion. But Vice President Wallace, a communist, was very opposed to violence. He was very opposed to the use of nuclear weapons. An interesting thing happened in the fourth Democratic convention when Roosevelt was at the end of his life and getting elected to his fourth term. They dumped this communist, pro-peace, pro-Soviet Union, pro-human vice president, and they installed and they put in as the vice president, president Vice President Harry Truman. Very shortly after Roosevelt and Truman were elected for Roosevelt's fourth term, Roosevelt died. Truman became the president, and Truman was a horse of a completely different color. He was installed by the military-industrial complex. His mission was to assert American hegemony over the world. I'm not quite so sure had Vice President Wallace been the president when Roosevelt died, had we ever, we may never have gone down this road. But the powers that be, and we know their names, 
And one of the things we want to understand on the Professor Penn podcast, it's not they. When people say, oh, they're doing it. No, no. It's individuals that have names and histories and political philosophies, and we don't want to let them get off the hook as they. We want to name them. We want to know them. We want to call them out, and we want to modify their behavior because as we heal our human will and regain our desire to live and to have well-being, we will establish a country based on human well-being. But this young man here, Mr. Truman, because he was younger than me when he was saying this, so I can say he's a young man, he just said something very interesting. He said the Japanese started the war, and we've dropped these bombs to take revenge, which is a very strange thing to say as the leader of a country. It's a very strange thing. It's a disturbing thing for me to hear that we're dropping a nuclear bomb to pay the Japanese back many-fold. Mr. Producer, could you continue along with this now? With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. Stop again, please. So... I do have to say, and we have to put it into context, the country was at war. It was a horrifying war. People were terrified, as well they should be, because it was a world war. And what President Truman was saying to the people was, guess what? We've got the biggest bombs, we've got the most powerful military, and we're getting ready to kick ass. Uh, But when you look at it in hindsight, What he was really saying was we, the United States of America, had developed the capacity of mass destruction, mass murder. And he was bragging about it. And having grown up in the 50s and 60s, we were proud of it. We liked being the baddest ass on the block. We thought it was great. What we weren't thinking about then is once you're on the top of the hill, when you're the king of the hill, Everybody else wants to knock you off of there. And right now today, the United States of America has many, many competitors that are not interested in being dominated by what is called the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. That's the post-World War II Democratic liberal order. That's what President Truman put in place. That's what President Biden is attempting to maintain. So it started out with the dropping of the nuclear bomb. They killed hundreds of thousands of people in an instant, and they didn't think twice about it. They thought it was the right thing to do. Why? Well, they wanted to pay the Japanese back many-fold, or at least that's what they told the American people. But there's been many historians over the years that have said the reason they dropped that bomb was to take our other competitors like the Soviet Union and scare the living shit out of them so we could dictate the terms of the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. Now, there are many other historians who have said, and have, and this is worth parsing into, because, you know, I'm not in these people's heads. I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, I wish I did. I wish they left the record, but of course they didn't. Many historians have said that had the United States had to do a conventional uh, invasion of Japan, like 
the original uh, clip where President Eisenhower was talking to the troops that were going in Normandy, that there could have been millions of American casualties, millions. So dropping the bomb was actually uh, appropriate and humane because the amount of killing and damage was actually far less. Maybe, possible. We could have a whole podcast devoted to looking at that issue. But what did happen was we did introduce into the world a scientific development and a scientific achievement that put into the hands of man the power to destroy with mass destruction, even to the extent that the world itself could be destroyed. And this, this kind of destruction, this kind of power in the hands of man, this kind of power to destroy is not the power to create. It's the power to kill, not to create. Well-being is about creation. Well-being is about making things blossom forth. It's an art. Killing, there's also an art to killing, but it's about destruction and ending life. So our country's current history, where we took the supreme position as the leader of the post-World War II democratic liberal order, was based on our scientific prowess and our ability to kill millions of people. Could you continue with that, please? It's an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. You can stop it again. I just want to say one more thing. President Truman just said it harnessed the, what was it, the fundamental power of the universe? I'd like to hear that one more time. Yes, the basic power. Harness the basic power of the universe. You know, if you believe in God, you would not say that the atomic bomb or the hydrogen bomb harnesses the basic power of the universe. That would be incorrect. The power of the universe would be the supreme being or God sine qua non by himself. And the scientific understanding of the natural laws of the universe would be derivative. I think this is something that we can contemplate because what President Truman is saying is there is no God, that the basic uh, power of the universe is the laws of, uh, of nature that science was uncovering, exploring, harnessing, and exploiting, not for human well-being, but to create mass death. Could you please continue? Power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. It's very nervous looking. We are now prepared to destroy more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake, we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. It was to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction that the ultimatum of July the 26th was issued at Potsdam. Their leaders promptly rejected that ultimatum. 
If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a reign of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Behind this air attack will follow sea and land forces in such numbers and power as they have not yet seen and with the fighting skill of which they are already well aware. Look at him laugh about this. Unbelievable. We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history. Stop, please. We have spent more than $2 billion on the greatest scientific gamble in history. The entire predicate of the post-World War II democratic liberal order is not people. It's not humanity. It's not well-being. It's science and its ability to kill. Could you please keep going? And we have won. But the greatest marvel is not the size of the enterprise, its secrecy, or its cost, but the achievement of scientific brains in making it work. And hardly less marvelous has been the capacity of industry to design and of labor to operate the machines and methods to do things never done before. Both oh, got to stop industry. on that one. These people, he is bragging, the President of the United States, and we were all in on it. Every single American was in on this. The ability of the greatest scientific brains and of industry and of labor to organize the construction and the delivery of the greatest killing machine ever constructed previously. You know, there's not a lot of difference in, in our human nature. When we were cavemen, we threw rocks at each other to kill each other. You pick up a rock, throw it at a person hard enough, hit him in the head, you'll kill him. There's really no difference in kind, just in scope. A nuclear bomb on a missile is a rock, but instead of killing one person, you kill everybody. That's our great achievement. That is, the, that is the pinnacle, the paradigm of what made America the leader of the quote-unquote free world. And I'm going to submit that it's my opinion that that's not freedom. That's servitude. Could you please continue? Work together under the direction of the United States Army, which achieved a unique success in an amazingly short time. It is doubtful if such another combination could be got together in the world. What has been done is the greatest achievement of organized science in history. Oh, there it is again. The greatest achievement of organized science in history. Was this really an achievement? Did it make the people well? Did it extend life? Did it enhance well-being? Did it bring truth or insight into the human condition? Did it liberate people from their sadness? Did it help heal the damaged human will? No. This is a, a technology of death. And it dominates our world today. We're sitting here today on the verge of nuclear war with Russia. We're in a rapid escalation 
of there is a ladder of escalation, and we're scurrying up it as fast as we can go. And when I say we, the United States is the aggressor. Another podcast could be devoted to that because contrary, in my opinion, contrary to what we see in the mainstream media narrative about the Ukraine, there is ample evidence, ample historical documentation of how the United States has intervened into the Ukraine to create the very conflict that we suffer from today. I suffer from today. And I'm going to tell you, I certainly don't want to die in a nuclear holocaust. And I know that I'm quite capable of functioning in a post-apocalyptic environment, although it just doesn't sound very fun. It sounds very difficult, a lot of suffering, a lot of sadness. So I would like to avoid that for myself, and I'd like to avoid that for my children. So maybe in a few weeks, millions of us will be in the streets protesting. Because if we do protest this, and we are in the streets, suddenly our government will back off, and suddenly there will be a peace talk, and suddenly this thing will be solved, because it's very easy to solve this problem. Anyhow, could you please continue? Let's finish with, if there's anything left here from President Truman. Or did we get to the end? Is that the end? Okay. So here we have President Truman bragging, telling us about how great what was achieved is. The dropping of those bombs destroyed Japan's fighting spirit. They completely capitulated. Germany had already surrendered. Uh, Germany was partitioned between the United States and the Soviet Union, basically. And uh, war, you know, peace broke out in, in Europe. And it was kind of a problematic peace. It's not like peace just broke out. I mean, there was a lot of conflict for a long time. But it, it was better. The Nazis were defeated. Uh, the Japanese Imperial Empire was defeated with the dropping of these bombs. Uh, the post-World War II democratic liberal order started. And away we went, the United States of America, as the uh, number one country on the earth, strongest country, strongest militarily, strongest economically. And all of a sudden, it didn't take very long that people started to wonder and worry about what was going on. Now, we're going to watch uh, General Eisenhower, who, after uh, his career in the military, became a politician ran as a Republican and became president of the United States. And he was president from 1952 to uh, 1961. And at the end of his term, and it was a very uh, relatively uneventful term, if you can imagine the, the period of the 40s and 30s where we had the Great Depression and a giant world war, the war ended and, you know, life was pretty good in the 1950s. And uh, Eisenhower uh, was a, a very, very savvy uh, the leader, uh, a great uh, uh, organ organizer of, of large systems because he had organized the largest fighting force in human history, which was the United Nations of the Allied Forces. So he was a, he was a good administrator of the United States government, and things were quiet, and he got to the end of his second term, and he laid out the most amazing warning for the American people that, and this is a very famous speech, and many of you are familiar with it, and some of you are going to see it for the first time. I'll bet some of you have never heard of General Eisenhower 
or heard of him as President Eisenhower. Because it's a long time ago. If you're 25 years old, we're talking about the 1950s. You know, that's a long time ago for a 25 or 33, 35-year-old. But this is the root of where we're at today. This is why we're living the way we are today. So let's listen to General Eisenhower's warning. I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell. This speech did not get very much attention. When a new president is coming to power, as John Kennedy was, the spotlight was not on Dwight Eisenhower. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. There was a feeling at the time that this must have been written by some speechwriter who just sneaked into the speech. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Three months ago, uh, we got contacted by a family up in Minnesota saying that we have documents from Malcolm Moose. He was responsible for, in, in part for drafting the military-industrial complex speech. These new papers give us written evidence that this was not just some caprice of Eisenhower's or something by some speechwriter. You see the evolution of his speech from, from May 1959 to uh, 1961. And he wanted to give this speech for a long time, two years. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. There was one person in Dwight Eisenhower's life whom he really confided almost everything to, and that was his brother Milton. There's one particular document where the speechwriters had already drafted their version of his speech only to see uh, Milton come along and totally revamp what had already been, been written. When Milton Eisenhower was uh, taking notes and writing things on the drafts of these speeches, the speechwriters knew that it wasn't Milton talking, it was Ike. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. He would see magazines with advertisements for some you know, new warplane or some bomb, and he got so angry he'd take the magazine and throw it into the fireplace of the Oval Office because he felt that defense spending should not be something that would be encouraged by companies who are seeking commercial gain. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. There is an interesting document. It shows that the farewell speech would be made to Congress. But yet, President Eisenhower decided, no, he was going to address the people. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals. Can you play that back, please, Mr. Producer? Just play that last line back. Just, yeah, there you go, just that can last. Can compel the proper meshing of the well, huge industrial and military machinery A little bit back, please. I want to talk about the, the people. Congress. Talk. But yet, President Eisenhower decided, no, he My was fellow Americans. the people. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals. Could you stop it, please? Okay, so this is really a big part of this uh, uh, podcast going forward an alert, knowledgeable populace. 
is what is going to compel the engagement of the American people, the use of the human will, the use of the American people's will to enforce upon our leadership a judicious, sane, and well-being application of science and technology in everyday life. President Eisenhower was encouraging and, and calling out the American people to be involved, to, to moderate and to put guardrails around this giant industry that had grown up and that had become ensconced in our, in our life. It was a permanent military-industrial complex, unprecedented in American history. And we've grown up, I grew up in that, I grew up in that. I never knew life before there was a permanent military-industrial complex. We were proud of that military-industrial complex. We believed in it. It was safe. It made us America great. We were great. Uh, were we? Our greatness was not based on the quality of our ideas. It was not based on the, the um, righteousness of our action or the justice that we uh, spent on our fellow citizens in pursuit of truth. Our greatness was predicated on might, the ability to destroy. And the President Eisenhower, who was the former head general, is warning us as the American people about the power and weight of this military-industrial complex. This speech, I wish it could be played 24 hours a day, and every American citizen could watch it because it is just as appropriate today, just as meaningful today, just as potent today as it was in 1961. And what is the president saying? He's saying it's up to us. We have to be engaged in the political. We have to get off our asses, off the couch. Stop being addicted. Stop being slaves of entertainment. And actually get involved as American citizens and practice our self-governance if we wish to curb the excesses of this giant military-industrial complex. Could you please continue it? So that security and liberty may prosper together. One test of how well a president speaks is how long the speech lives. Here we are 50 years later, we're still talking about this speech. Now, on Friday noon, I am to become a private citizen. I am proud to do so. I look forward to it. Thank you, and good night. We absolutely loved uh, General Eisenhower. Really didn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. This man led the United Nation Allied Expeditionary Force. He was uh, responsible for uh, uh, the American Army and the British Army and the Canadian Army as they moved forward from Normandy across France into Germany, and they met up with the Soviet Union Army, and the war ended in Europe, and, and that was such a great darkness with genocide and savagery unparalleled in human history, unparalleled in human history, beyond the concept of anyone that's watching this podcast. Because they didn't take prisoners. They didn't have food. They raped and pillaged without restraint 
There were no rules. It was what the Germans called total Krieg, total war. Total war means, hey, last man standing, no rules. And ultimately, isn't that what war always is? Isn't it always going to be that way if we're Darwinists? Because if we're Darwinists, we believe in the survival of the fittest. There's no rules in that. Whoever survives is the winner. That is not the path of peace or the path of justice or the path of truth. That is the path of faith. These two ideologies are in stark contrast, complete opposition, and we're living in a time as American citizens where we're in a tornado of these two giant storm fronts hitting each other, that of faith and that of Darwin. And we're going to sort it out to some degree. Now, my personal belief is that there's no total victory one way or the other. There's always going to be a Darwinist nature and a faith nature. But right now, today, for example, in Minnesota where I live, we have one party rule here. Democrat Party won every branch of government. Government. And they passed comprehensive abortion uh, legislation here. And I'm not here to talk about abortion, right or wrong, but they passed legislation where abortion was legal to the ninth month. And I know that the overwhelming majority of Americans support abortion, but not at the moment of birth. That typically has been called infanticide. So when you have this Darwinist orientation, Human life is subordinated to the survival of the fittest. It's a very brutal uh, philosophy, and it's one that is dominating our public life today. It's dominating our economic life. It's dominating our family life. It's dominating our personal lives. And it's not something that we can reject. It's all around us. It's time for me to really take a look at this Darwinist philosophy and try to understand how it's affecting every, every element of, of my life and every element of my, my family's life. Because I want, I want there to be some level of redemption, some level of salvation, some level of faith that moderates the brutality that is associated with survival of the fittest. And we're watching that survival of the fittest game play out in Ukraine. Why is that war escalating? Because our government, the United States government, believes that we have such overwhelming military superiority that the Russians are going to ante out. That's what, that's what we're led to believe. That's not to say that it could be, could be, and it is some people's opinion, that they just want to have a war. But that's another subject for another podcast. The fact is, on a rational kind of basic level, the escalation is aimed at forcing the other party to ante out. And there's nobody anteing out, so we keep escalating. So back to President Eisenhower. So that was his farewell address. Those of you who remember President Kennedy, President Jack Kennedy, uh, I certainly remember it. I was alive. I was conscious. He was a young leader. Uh, I think he was 46 years old when he was elected to the presidency. He was the first of his generation to get into political power. You can see the age difference between Kennedy and Eisenhower was profound, 30, 40 years difference. 
So Kennedy came in with a completely different attitude. He had served in World War II. He had served courageously, heroically. He had been severely injured, saving other people that was in his command. Uh, he and, and I think the same thing is true with, with, with uh, General Eisenhower. Generally, people who have been in really serious fights are very cautious and slow to fight. Uh, when we have not been in a fight, uh, when we lived kind of a digitized life, or we've lived a sheltered life, or we lived a life as a professional politician, never got in a fight, never carried a gun, never seen anybody with their brains blown out in front of them, we have a little bit less restraint. And I think General Eisenhower in his speech was was passing the ball off to President Kennedy with a great warning for the people about uh, this military-industrial complex, which included the security state. Let's let's remember that the, the military-industrial complex, as General Eisenhower described it, really is the military-industrial complex, the media-industrial complex, the medical-industrial complex, and the security state. All of the these these domains really are all science. They're all the outgrowth of the scientific method, and the 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 bringing away of people from lives of faith and devotion to lives of science and scientific technique. So there's the military-industrial complex with the ability to kill millions in an instant. There's the medical-industrial complex, which is many, many podcasts to discuss what is valuable and what is harmful because much of what science has wrought in the world beyond the military is very harmful. So I would like to sort out for myself and do it with you what is valuable and what is to be rejected. There's the media industrial complex. If you're watching this, you're already uh, experimenting and, or are delving into alternative, alternative forms of media, but we have our traditional mainstream media. They have a narrative, and that narrative is, is in harmony with, in my opinion, with the security state. There is a narrative about our country. There is a story, a propaganda, my opinion, you may differ with me, but there seems to be, in my opinion, a very clear ideology that Hollywood and the media put forth on a daily basis, an hourly basis, that supports our military-industrial complex narrative and our medical-industrial complex narrative. And I want to just bring out one other one that's as critical, our educational system. All of these complexes work together these are the institution of our modern life, and they all have one thing in common, Darwinism. They all are institutions of the post-World War II democratic liberal order, which is the highest flowering of the Renaissance, which is a diminution of faith and the adoration of science and scientific benefit. And every one of us is a child of that ideology. And now we sit on the precipice of utter and complete destruction. Mass death. Horrific, horrific uh, suffering. And we all have a chance to think about how do we get here and what do we want in the future? I tend to believe that not many of us want to live in the suffering of a post-apocalyptic world, although I might be wrong. I'm old. 
if you're in your 20s or your 30s and you want to live in a post-apocalyptic world, please go to one of my social media channels and let me know because I'm interested in what young people are thinking as much as I hope you're interested in what the older people are thinking. And what I'm thinking is we got to think this through again because, in my opinion, what we've generated is pure horse shit. People are not well. They're full of anxiety. They're hooked on drugs. They're hooked on their digital devices. They don't have physical skills. They don't know how to critically think. They're dependent on medicine. They're slaves. Slaves of the postmodern era. Not free men and women, but slaves to these, my opinion, slaves to these institutions. Do I want to live as a slave? I absolutely do not, and I'm going to tell you, I am not a slave. I'm a free man. I've worked for my freedom. I've liberated myself. There is a technique for doing it. I will share that technique with every one of you. That technique has brought me into touch with spiritual dimensions that I find greatly satisfying. And if I could sum it up, the truth will set you free. And that's what I'm doing with you today. I'm trying to go through this and find truth for myself because every time I go through these things, I learn more, I see more, I understand more, I become deeper, more rooted in the truth, more connected to nature. My well-being increases. And I want to say something about well-being. You can be dying and be well. Every person dies. But you can die well or you can die a slave. The choice is completely up to each one of us. I choose to go through the trouble and the work and the struggle and the study to set myself free and to ensue well-being. And I, I know that this was what people learned up until the early 1900s where we got into this um, uh, Horace Mann uh, progressive education. Uh, previously to that, our schools taught us how to be well. You went to school to learn how to read, how to write, how to do arithmetic, and how to be well. It was about generating well-being, creating a well-being society. Well, we gave that up. When did we give it up? At the beginning of the progressive movement in this country, in the early 1900s. Another podcast in the future. So President Kennedy came along in 1961. I remember him like it was yesterday. I was old enough to be conscious of him. I was old enough to adore him. Uh, he had a beautiful wife, Jacqueline Kennedy. He brought a completely new energy into the White House. And when I say completely new, this was a man who was good-looking, charismatic. He was funny and erudite, and he was inspiring. And a whole generation of young people, of which I was one of them, looked up to this man and said, this is cool. This guy's not like President Roosevelt or President Harding or President Eisenhower or President Truman, old fossilized defenders of the status quo. This guy was turning over the status quo. He was saying things that people had never said before about civil rights, about the Federal Reserve, about U.S. involvement around the world militarily, about his unwillingness to be captured by the, by the medical 
military security state complexes. This guy was a thinker, and boy, he was such an inspiring speaker. Inspired my generation beyond which any of you really can feel. Because, Mr. Producer, if you'd play that uh, next clip, number five, this is where hope goes to die. This version tracks the limousine and maintains President Kennedy and Governor Connolly at center frame. This version is only in slow motion. I'm going to assume that most of you have seen this famous Zapruder film. Some of you might not have seen it. Uh, that's the death of President Kennedy in 1963. He was killed in a major American city, Dallas, Texas. Uh, we were immediately told, and I remember it like it was yesterday, that he was killed by a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, we were told he was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald almost before he was killed. That's how quick it came out, the lone gunman theory. And then uh, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, was being uh, taken through a police station, and a guy named Jack Ruby jumped out of the crowd. He was uh, hanging around with the mafia, by the way. And Jack Ruby killed him live on television. I remember my mother was watching this with me. She fainted dead away on the floor because she'd never seen anybody shot. And uh, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald died. So we never really know what Lee Harvey Oswald's story was in a court of law. Before he died, he said that he was a patsy and that he didn't kill the president. And another great podcast would be just to go through this, which has been gone through by so many people. But what I really want to bring forth today is, my God, this was our leader was killed before our eyes. It was the most hopeful moment I mean, it was the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. We had a liberal president who cared about civil rights and women's rights and equal pay for equal, for equal work and to lessen the importance of the military-industrial complex in our country. And let's audit the Federal Reserve and see what's going on there. This guy, by today's terms, he was a radical. I mean, actually, he would never have been a Democrat today. Today, this guy is a American first Republican, but at that time, he was a Democrat. That's another thing we can all think about, because one thing turns into its opposite. Nothing stays the same, and these parties change over time. And this guy was so cool, and his wife was cool. And if you looked at what happened, and everybody saw it, he's driving along, and he gets shot, and he goes forward a little bit, and then boom, it's very obvious a bullet hits him right in the forehead because his body catapults back. Anybody that's fired a gun and shot anything knows how this shit works. And right away they told us, nope, he was shot from behind. Don't believe your lion eyes because, see, Oswald was behind him 
in a building called the Texas Book Depository. If Oswald was behind him and he was a lone gunman, gunman, how did the front of his head get blown off and his head jacked back from a bullet hitting him in the head? And they said, oh, we have a theory. They called it the magic bullet. They came up with so much bullshit. The bullshit ran so deep, but we loved our country. We loved being the top dog. We liked being on top of the hill. We wanted to trust our government. After all, we had just defeated the Nazis and the Italians and the Japanese in World War II. These people were ballers. These people had our back. They protected us. They had vaccines for us that kept us from getting terrible diseases. We had cars, televisions. We had jobs. I mean, life was good. We didn't want to mess with it. We didn't want to really delve into what we saw there. We wanted to believe our government. We wanted to believe we had faith, misplaced faith in man instead of the appropriate faith in God. So we believed these people, and they lied to us full blast. They just lied and lied and lied, and we sucked it up with a straw. And the idea of the conspiracy theory, the word conspiracy theory started Right after this event, it was a very negative connotation. It's still negative today. You know, I'm, you know, we watch the things that are going on, and people say they're conspiracy theorists or tinfoil hat people. It's very negative. It's like you're kind of a, a dummy, right? Well, who started the word conspiracy theory? The CIA came up with it. Why? Because an American president, my president, had his head blown off on national television in a major American city on a bright, sunny day, and nobody ever went to jail for it. The guy who allegedly pulled the trigger was shot on national TV live, and the guy who shot him never said a word about why, and he was in the mafia or a mafia hanger on her. And we all accepted this, like, what? You can look back at the history of this now. When I look back at the history of this, I have to ask myself, was I dumb? I mean, I was dumb. It was the 60s. I really, oh, we went to the moon. We had all these great technical achievements. You know, we believed a complete bullshit story. And it is the predicate for the suffering that we're finding ourselves in today because we let our government lie to us. And what's even greater about it our Congress actually investigated the assassinations, not just of JFK, but his brother Bobby Kennedy was killed by a guy named Sirhan Sirhan. Kind of a strange name. It means in Arabic, it means wolf, wolf. By the way, there's no wolves in the Middle East. It's a little bit of a strange name. Sirhan Sirhan, look it up. And then Martin Luther King was shot by James O'Reilly, the lone gunman. And then Malcolm X was shot. And all these leaders, the, the, the defenders of truth and justice in the American way, one, two, three, four, were killed right before our eyes. And I was alive. And we went from hope and faith and enthusiasm and optimism about what lied before, but what could open before us as the American people to 
greed and selfishness and self-protectedness and darkness. Who did this to us? How did this happen? How was it that this great generation that liberated us from the darkness of Nazism and Japanese imperialism, within 25 years after that war, our country and its people went from the jubilation of victory to the tyranny of assassination. Because what does assassination really teach us? It teaches us that if we resist, we will be killed. And we see that every day in our cities. We just saw it this past week with this horrible uh, beating of this young man, Nichols, in Memphis. He resisted, and he was killed. The message of that is so chilling. And every one of us, and including myself, we are afraid to speak up. Now, I'm speaking up. I'm afraid. But courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to function with fear. We all need to be afraid. But we need to get up, get off the couch, get into the streets, join our local political parties, and as President Eisenhower encouraged us, use our human will to rein in the excesses of these institutions in our country that are Darwinist and don't give a shit about any one of us. We are inventory for them. And if you want to be inventory and get used, continue to look at your phone, continue to ignore the truth, probably won't tune into the podcast again, because I'm looking for the people that want to work with me to understand the past, find the truth together, and then go into action to make this a better world, a place where we can pursue well-being, or as our founding fathers called it, the pursuit of happiness. You know, we have this strange idea about happiness. Ah, happy, happy. The founding fathers weren't talking about happy, happy. They were talking about the pursuit of well-being. Well-being is what makes us happy, the feeling of wellness. That is the definition of happiness. It's not buying a new car. That goes away. Buy a new car, you feel good for a day. It's not a new girlfriend or boyfriend, because oftentimes that ends up in a heartbreak. It's not making a lot of money, because that's very material and has a very shallow depth to it. But well-being, being well, it's well with you. That's a lifetime gift. And we need to learn it. We need to teach it to each other. We need to build it in our American society. We need to make it the central focus of our government. We need to make it the central focus of every institution. We need to make it the central focus of our families. We, make, we need to make it the central focus of everything we do. We are so far from well-being as a country. And the greatest lie is that we're the greatest country on earth. If the people are not well, we are not great. Because greatness is not how many people you can kill. Greatness is how well your, your population is. And we're very unwell. Very, very, very terribly unwell as a country. 
So this John Kennedy assassination and the assassination of, of his brother RFK and the assassination of Martin Luther King, and, and I, I, you know, I, I would love to bring in a young uh, member of the black community to talk about what it means, maybe an older member, talk about what it means to the, to the, to the, to that community, that important, vital part of our American experience. What would it mean if the two liberators of your community, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, are both cut down? What did that do to people's thinking? Because I know in the uh, general population, the the death of John Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy just crushed, just crushed our hope. And Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, our hope was gone. So what did our, our, our Congress do? Well, there were good people in our Congress. This is a long time ago. There's nothing wrong with our institutions. There's something wrong with the people in the institutions. I want to say this again because it's something I've been corrected about many times. It's not the institutions of our governance. It's the people that are in those institutions. They're Darwinists. They do not have faith. They do not care about me. And I reject that. So I'm doing everything I can to restore sacred honor into our governance. And there's, there's millions of people like me. Join. Come on. Because if we all put our voices uh, together in a chorus and we all put our shoulders to the mainmast, we can get this thing worked out pretty quickly. But it requires the American people. We the people. Now, you know, people say, oh, you can't let the inmates run the asylum. Yeah, if the doctors are mass murdering fuckheads, yes, we can. So I'm going to say uh, that in the 1970s, we had good elected officials because our populace was more engaged, more educated. And we elected a great Democratic senator, a Democratic senator from Idaho. His name was Frank Church. And he led a committee that investigated these assassinations. And Mr. Producer, I'd like you to play that last bit. The committee does not believe that the acts which it has examined represent the real American character. They do not reflect the ideals which have given the people of this country and of the world hope for a better, fuller, fairer life. We regard the assassination plots as aberrations. The United States must not adopt the tactics of the enemy. Means are as important as ends. Crisis makes it tempting to ignore the wise restraints that make men free. But each time we do so, each time the means we use are wrong, our inner strength, the strength which makes us free, is lessened. You know, I would like you to play it one more time. It's so good, and it's kind of disappeared into the annals of history, this Senator Frank Church. This is so eloquent, and he's saying, and I didn't realize because I got it ready, but I, I'm talking about well-being. This man is talking about well-being. Listen to this soaring rhetoric and how he is rejecting as an aberration these plots in this darkness. Please play it one more time for me. 
The committee does not believe that the acts which it has examined represent the real American character. They do not reflect the ideals which have given the people of this country and of the world hope for a better, fuller, fairer life. We regard the assassination plots as aberrations. The United States must not adopt the tactics of the enemy. Means are as important as ends. Crisis makes it tempting to ignore the wise restraints that make men free. But each time we do so, each time the means we use are wrong, our inner strength, the strength which makes us free, is lessened. Gosh, I just love that. That, is, that, that should be transcribed and put on a statue. The, Senator Church is saying that um, the ends do not justify the means, that the means are just as important. The path is what we're on here. It's not about where we're going to or where we're going to get to. It's how we get there. And that every time we remove the guardrails in pursuit of an end, we lose our freedom. And I will tell you that without freedom, there is no well-being. Our well-being is based on freedom. This is such soaring rhetoric. This is a Democrat from Idaho in the 1970s talking about assassinations that were perpetrated by our security apparatus. I don't think he was specifically talking about the Kennedy assassinations or Martin Luther King and um, Malcolm X. However, that was also investigated at the time. And what's so interesting that the House uh, investigation into these assassinations, specifically the assassination of President Kennedy, reversed what was called the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission was, uh, uh, the commissioners were appointed by President Johnson to investigate the Kennedy assassination right after the assassination. And they came out with the magic bullet theory, uh, the lone gunman theory, and case closed. It was all done. And you know what? When you see that man's head snap back from a frontal shot, because Oswald was behind him. So when his head snapped back like that, don't believe your lying eyes. Don't believe it. We have the scientific method that are, is going to tell you that Oswald fired four shots, he was the lone gunman, and it was pure bullshit. It was such bullshit, in fact, that about 15 years later or 20 years later, the House actually investigated the assassination of President Kennedy and their report, their, find, their findings was there was a conspiracy. They overturned the findings of the Warren Commission. And nobody knows that. You know, if we get 100 people in a room, a very large percentage of them are still to this day going to say that Kennedy was killed by a lone gunman named Lee Harvey Oswald. Many people from my generation who lived through it are going to say, lone gunman, lone gunman, lone gunman because it makes them feel safe. Because a conspiracy means that a group of people got to see a lone gunman's a crazy man. Oh, crazy man, crazy man, crazy. We don't have to pay attention. 
We don't have to come to grips with what just happened, the murder of our president on a bright, sunny day in a major American city. We don't have to come to grips with it because it's just a crazy man. The fact that he was an ex-Marine, had uh, defected to the Soviet Union and lived there for many years, had a Russian wife, forget all that. Forget all that. Unimportant. Let's not look at any of this seriously. Let's just close the book and go ahead and make money. Well, the the, the House investigated, and they came out with their findings that this was, this killing of President Kennedy was a conspiracy or was very likely to be a conspiracy. And you know what's so interesting to me? For all these years later, no one ever went to jail. The investigations were dropped. Most people still think it was a lone gunman. And the implications of that assassination, which broke the heart of America, destroyed the hope of the post-war generation, which confined us in fear of our lives. Because if we stepped out of line, hey, if they can kill a president, who the hell am I? Right? So everybody got real quiet, real selfish. Everybody went to work, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and a bing and a bang and a boop, and here we are today. But that killing suppressed us, duressed us, and set us on the path. So it's Eisenhower to Truman to Kennedy to Biden. And when we start to come to grips with what this line of reasoning, this line of dependence on science, the belief in all things scientific are true and good, that science always brings progress because science was used to justify the low gunman theory. It was all about science. They read, they rolled the science out a thousandfold to prove to me that it wasn't a conspiracy. Because if it had been a conspiracy, we would have had to investigate who the conspirators were and why did they conspire and why did they kill that great young president. But it all got covered up and it is carried by every single American If you don't think it's affecting you today, go ahead. Deny it. You have to really work to find in yourself the fear that's associated with if you step out of line, you're going to get beat to death or shot or imprisoned. But our society runs with the fear, the state power, to suppress and kill resistors or dissenters. And that is so antithetical to the American Constitution. What is our Constitution, essentially, is a document that protects the rights of the minority against the power of the majority. And it is a document that stands against the globalism of the British Empire. I want to say it again so I hear myself. We live in a constitutional republic that was set up to defend the rights of minority human beings such that they could pursue the well-being of happiness against and to protect us against a globalized empire that engaged in slavery, drug business, and piracy. And our founding fathers tried to carve out a world, a new Jerusalem here in the United States, where people could pursue faith, 
and the ownership of land and well-being and to throw off the business model of Europe, the colonial enterprise of Europe, which is piracy, drugs, and slavery. So think about our current situation here in America today. We're wage slaves. Now, that's not as bad as horrible slavery, but there's slavery all over the world, real slavery. And in our country, we're all working just to, just to put food on the table. It's wage slavery. Our country is overwhelmed by drugs, both legal and illegal. And piracy is afoot. It's called inflation. Inflation is stealing all of your net worth. So, thank you for listening. This is the Professor Penn Podcast. I'll be with you regularly. I'm forming a community with you. This is about understanding the past, knowing how we got to where we are today, picking a direction for the future. Please subscribe to the channel. Please press the like button, and I look forward to seeing you soon again. Have a very good day.